Good morning again. Thanks for being here. Um, today we're going to be going fast, so uh, I'm just going to start right here on the very first page uh, toward the top middle of the page. You'll see, um, well, there's just a few summary, uh, summary statements about the things that we have covered. We're going to start right here on the first page where it says Christos, Christocentric approach to the law. When we, want to, when we want to talk about the law, we need to talk about it in context. And usually what you're going to hear people say is in redemptive historical context. What we're talking about is that not only does God speak to us in the scriptures and present um, events in um, things like the Ten Commandments, it's in the context of the history um, of <clears throat> the development of redemption. And in order for us to understand it rightly, um, we have to look at it not just as a history in terms of a, a set of brute facts, historical facts. This is redemptive history. And it's redemptive history that is uh, structured around the inherent covenantal structure underneath it. So as we see throughout the first five books of the Bible, um, there's one continuous story. And the Ten Commandments play a pivotal part, and they play, but they're positioned in such a way that in order to understand it truly, you need to understand it in that redemptive historical context. And it is driven on the structure of the covenants. And most importantly, it is Christotelic. So what I mean by that is that it's pointing towards Christ as the ultimate fulfillment for all of these things that we're being taught through our reflection on the history, the redemptive history of Israel. Okay, so just a few things uh, I want to point out is we're gonna, what I wanted to do today is I want to go through a lot of the text and I want to point out these things that we've been talking about, these aspects, partic- peculiar aspects of the law and uh, not just how it's presented, but how these things lead up to and specifically lead up to the, the preamble and the prologue, which... Um, is on the second page there. I'll just read it quickly. And God spoke all these words, saying, the preamble, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we see the giving of the stipulations. So to get us to that point, uh, just a couple of reflections. The law is not kept um, to establish the relationship with God. The law is given to help God's people live in liberty in a way that is pleasing to God, and expresses gratitude for the blessings he's already bestowed. Um, and there is a certain unity and diversity to the law. Uh, we're going to see that as it develops throughout the, the text. And the law displays God's righteous and holy character and his will for both his people and we'll see the nations of the world. But there's two things in particular, key things I want to point out before we get started here, is that every covenant has responsibilities. Every covenant has responsibilities. Um, but in God's economy, the obligations are always blessings. And we're going to see that right off the bat in Genesis. He gives us obligations and stipulations, but they're always blessings. Uh, so there's a pattern. We're going to see it. Uh, I hope you'll see it. You're going to see this pattern. As for me, as for you. Okay? Uh, watch for that. And um, uh, I'm just going to read this real quick summary. When we read the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments like this, we see that it's a table of human and divine rights. They're expressed in the characteristically biblical way of responsibilities. 
So these stipulations are blessings, they're divine rights that are given to this people who he has freed, right? And these rights are, respons- are, are, are given as, as responsibilities. And at every point, uh, they stand in glorious contradiction to the injustice and oppression that they experienced in Egypt. And so it's, uh, it's kind of a bill of rights for this new people that he has constituted. It's a gift of grace and is a response to redemption and embodiment of righteousness. It's a most positive and liberating charter, not at all the narrow, restricting, legalistic document that we might think it is. That's one of the reasons why it's so important not to be, you know, just these are the Ten Commandments, like just moral stipulations uh, disembodied from the preamble and all that that summarizes and represents. Um, so, um, by, the, by means of the Exodus, God has conferred rights and freedom on His people, and, preserves, and precisely to preserve those rights and freedoms, they were translated into responsibilities for the community. And that's what we're going to see in the Ten Commandments. So, in, um, in a big picture sense, <clears throat> I hope you're going to, you'll see this movement here. We're going to see this movement starting in Genesis. God's going to create man, going to put Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Um, We're going to have the fall. We see Cain. We see uh, the population increase until we get to judgment because things are going bad. We have the flood. God chooses Noah, right? Um, Reestablishes through his descendants. Um, The people grow again. And from there, we have the nations, Continue to have a fall. Uh, this mankind's fallen. And God intervenes at Babel, right? What, is he, what happens after Babel? He disperses the nations. Then we have God pulling Abraham out of the nations, out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he's going to promise to establish a new people. And he promises to be nations from Abraham and his seeds and his descendants. Um, he lets him know in advance they're going to go into Egypt, they're going to serve. They're going to come back to this mountain and serve him, and, um, and, and the story continues on. But what you're going to see is you're going to see Eden. Then we're going to see the land. We're going to see the tent. We're going to see the tabernacle. We're going to see progression, okay? All right. So if we're going over to page 3, we're just going to start right here in Genesis. I'm just going to point a few things out. We're going to go fast to these texts. Uh, hopefully you'll have a chance to go back, maybe listen to the audio or read back through these texts um, at, on, uh, when you get a chance. Uh, starting in Genesis 1, 27, 28, God created man. He created him. He created him. <clears throat> then you're going to see in, 20, in 28, he blessed them. And then he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And he says, I have given you. You shall have. I have given Look at the order here. It's creation, right? He created, then he blessed, and then he gave stipulations, right? And the, and the stipulations, the commandments, are in themselves blessings, right? This pattern is going to continue as we move on to Genesis 2, 5 through 9 and 15 through 17. And the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, move on down uh, to, let's say, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man that he have, whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. That word keep is also used in other places, translated most oftentimes in your ESV as guard. To keep it, to guard it, to work it. And he commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Then he qualifies it, but you may not eat of this one, or you surely, will surely die. Um, in, in Genesis 3, we see, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Uh, God intervenes, and he sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which, and he drove, him, he drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword uh, to guard, there's that word, to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, I'm going to stop right here, and I'm going to read, um, it's a long quote from uh, Dr. Furtado at RTS. He's an Old Testament professor, and he is uh, a biblical language, just biblical language uh, professor. Um, the Garden of Eden um, is a temple. Just like we're going to see in the future, the land was a temple. Uh, the first sanctuary God brought to earth was called the Garden of Eden. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he put cherubim at the entrance with a flashing sword going back and forth to guard the entrance. And it tells us explicitly that the entrance was on the east side of the garden. Now, Hebrew writing is very terse. And if the author is going to take the time to give us this kind of detail, he must do it for a reason. In the ancient world, the entrance to the temples were on the east side because the sun rose from the east and would fill the temple in the morning. And like we see even in the New Testament, Jesus says, um, if you follow me, says Jesus, then you won't be in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. This is probably one of the reasons why ancient temples faced east. But notice that we're told he, the entrance to the garden on the east, and any Israelite, when they heard this, they would have said, yeah, okay, duh, uh, we know that. Like all the temples, that's where they were. But, <clears throat> but God put uh, guardians with flashing swords to guard the entrance so that someone who was not qualified to get in would not get in because it's holy space. And if somebody gets in, they'll defy the sanctity of the sanctuary. Okay? It's a very old idea. It's why the temple, where the Levites were called gatekeepers later on, wore swords. And it was their job to keep anybody from entering the temple who wasn't, or the sanctuary who wasn't qualified. That's why in Psalm 24 we hear, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? And then it gives a list of qualifications. And if you didn't fit the bill, you weren't allowed in. And that was the job of the cherubim, to guard the way to the entrance of the sanctuary in order to keep it sacred. And this is, a, this is Adam's original job. He was to do two things in the garden, work it and guard it. Um, so the garden is a sanctuary. It's a holy place, it's a holy space with an entrance on its east side and cherubim on the east to protect the way. And of course, once Adam and Eve sinned against God and ate the apple, they're no longer holy. And since this is a holy space, they weren't allowed to stay anymore. The holy space, the sanctuary, so God expels them from the sanctuary. They got kicked out. We're going to see this happen again and again. If we move over to uh, Genesis 4.8, the narrative continues on. We see Cain. There's law here. It's, it's not, it's not uh, specified. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Then you're going to see the narrative move. From here, we're going to go straight into what? Adam's descendants. You're going to see this genealogical bits put in here to move the narrative forward. And we're going to move forward fast. We're going to go all the way to Adam's descendants. It's going to move us from that all the way to the time of Noah. And we're going to say the, in the generations of Adam, when God created man, he made him 
in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man, named them. In Genesis 6, 7, we see increasing corruption on the earth. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created. I've made them, but Noah found favor. We're going to see that again. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. You are righteous before me in this generation. He's righteous. The, the law is not specified, but the law is there. Because it's the law is giving in, given in the context of covenant. God remembered Noah. That's covenant language. God said, notice this over and over in the text. God says to Noah, go out from the ark, be fruitful and multiply. We're going back to Genesis again. So Noah went. God says go. The text is immediately, when they're obedient, the text immediately says, and Noah went. And he, just like he was supposed to, he took his wife and his sons and his sons' wives with him. He, they're showing you in the text by repetition, by repeating. He said to do it, and he did it. Look in Genesis 9, and God blessed Noah. Here we go, covenant language. Bless Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Harkens back to Genesis 1.28 again. You should, then we get, we get promises and stipulations and blessings intertwined. There'll be food for you. I gave you. Look at this. I gave you. I gave you. As for me. As for me. But you. As for you. You shall not. I will require. I will require. I will require. Be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly, multiply in it. Moving on down. I establish my covenant with you. This is God's covenant. He's establishing it. He establishes my, I establish my covenant with you. Then we move again quickly. The narrative moves and we what? Through the descendants of uh, Noah after the flood. And they take us straight from after that. He's going to pull Noah out of the ark, put him on dry ground. He's not in the promised land. He's not in the Garden of Eden. He's not in the wilderness. They'll be in the wilderness eventually. Now he's just on the dry ground. And we, what do we get? These are the clans of the sons of Noah. And it moves it to the nations, in their nations. And from these nations spread brought all over the earth after the flood. And it takes us straight to the Tower of Babel. Now what's going on here? Now the whole earth was one language. And they say, come, let us make bricks. Let us, let us, let us make a name for ourselves. And then we start seeing this vertical language. And the Lord came down. Come, let us go down so that. He's going to confuse her speech. He's going to disperse them. He, it says twice, he dispersed them all over the face of the earth. I'm going to read from Dr. <clears throat> Furtado again. At the Tower of Babel, a couple of things have happened. One, we often think about is that God divided up the language. Another, as Deuteronomy says, at that time, God disinherited the nations. Remember, God created all the nations, and God wanted his kingdom to come throughout all the nations. He wanted the whole world to be transformed into his Edenic, Edenic sanctuary, his paradise. The fall messed that up. So at the Tower of Babel, there's a violation of the boundaries he had set in place between heaven and earth, and they built a ziggurat. It wasn't really so much of a temple as it was a stairway to heaven. I bet you could probably write a pagan song about that, couldn't you? So um, but they would have a seat up at the top of the, of the ziggurat. And they'd have food and water so that the gods, when they came down, could refresh themselves before they made the rest of the arduous journey all the way down to be with the people. Um, what's the problem here? They wanted to bring heaven to earth. They didn't want to do it God's way. They wanted to do it their way. 
Um, they said they wanted to make a name for themselves. But God's going to tell Abraham, I'm going to give you a name. I will make your name great. I will make nations come from you. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Bring Eden to the ends of the earth. And they said, let's all stay here where it's nice and cozy and let's bring heaven to earth in our own terms, in our way. Forget God, we're the ones in charge. So God disperses and divides up the language, but Deuteronomy tells us he divided up the languages according to what? Most of your translations are going to say the sons of Israel. But we haven't even gotten to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob yet. Israel's not a thing in the flow, of, the historical flow of the text. The ESV, I think, is more correct here. It says, according to the sons of God. And in, in that term, uh, we'd understand that phrase more like Paul is, was calling it the rulers and the powers, the principalities of the air. So in other words, at the Tower of Babel, God not only, di- not only disinherits the nations, he turns them over to the dark side. That's why from the Tower of Babylon, we have cosmic warfare on two levels, heavenly and earthly. The story of the Bible from Babylon can almost be summarized this way. It's God against the other gods. It's Israel against the nations because Israel is the people of God and the nations belong to the evil one and the forces of darkness. That's what's going on in the background. Those are the big pieces. Immediately, the narrative is going to move from Babel onto Shem's descendants. And we're going to get to Terah. Interestingly, like the first generation we're going to see uh, after the Exodus, Terah takes his family and they're going to go to, they say they're going to go to Canaan. They stop and they don't go any further. And then God comes back and says to Abraham, I'm the one who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldees, right? I'm making my covenant with you. Think about what happened to the first generation that died in the wilderness. They never made it. And he says to the second generation, we'll see in a minute before they go in, I'm making this covenant with you. And what does he say to Abraham? Go. And and you're going to see it. So Abraham went. Abram went. To the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. Not like the nations he just disinherited. See, just look back. We just got out of that narrative with the nations, and he dispersed them, and he disinherited them. He said, I'm going to make a nation out of you, a holy nation. I will make your name great. Not You're going to make it for yourself. So that what? So that you will be a blessing. And he has covenant curses. He has covenant blessings. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promised land is a sanctuary. It's a holy space. It's a temple. Um, I'm been on time. Genesis 15, we see it continue. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Look how, he's, look how God is being referred to. It changes over the, history, over the course of the narrative, right? He goes, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I am the Lord. But if we look back at the second page of this whole packet today, And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God. Something's getting ready to happen here. Something big is getting ready to happen between this point in the narrative and before we get to um, the giving of the Ten Commandments. We see starting in Exodus. uh, Well, I'm going to back up just a minute. Into Genesis 17 there in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as, well, I'm going to back just a little bit further. I'm on the top of page 7. 
God says, I am God Almighty. That's how he identifies himself. Walk before me. Be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. There's Genesis language again. Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between you for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give it to you. I will be their God. That's a promise. And then God says, Abram, as for you, see, as for me, as for you, as for you, you're going to keep my covenant, the covenant you shall keep. Every male among you, and even you yourself, will be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. That's going to come back again to him. We see in Exodus, in one, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly, right? The people grew. God's promises are being fulfilled. We have the burning bush episode. The Lord said, I have surely seen, he calls Moses up. You see this vertical language, up to the mountaintop, right? I have surely seen, I have heard, I know their sufferings. I have come down out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land. We're starting to see specific language. We're starting to see that language that's in the preamble, in the prologue, right? I have come down to bring them up out of that land, into a land, to the place of, and we get all the ites, Right? The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Behold, the cry of the people has come. I have also seen the oppression. Come, I will send you. I will be with you. God is going to demonstrate his righteousness and that he's going to do the right thing. He's going to redeem them from that oppression. And then then, uh, Moses gets uh, to hear God's name. What is his name? He goes, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you or sent me to you. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers. I have, seen, I have observed. I promise. I will bring you up out of. And say to, say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, now we get to it, has met with us. Let us go that we may sacrifice. The Lord our God. That right there, the Lord our God, is going to be right here in the preamble and the prologue. It means something. You're seeing a progression in the way that God is revealing himself by name. He will stretch out his hand. He will give the people favor. He says, now you will see what I will do in Exodus 6, 9. God spoke to Moses and says, I am the Lord. He appeared to him. Look at all the I have. Just look at, you can look at it with the emphasis on the I, and you can look at it on the emphasis of the verb. I have heard. I am the Lord. I will bring. Or you can say, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. But it's I will. I will redeem you. I will take you to be. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I am the Lord. They needed to see it. They didn't believe. In fact, it says that right there in the text. Exodus 14, the Lord saved Israel that day. And and Israel saw the Egyptians. Israel saw the great power the Lord used. And they feared and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. 
Then we get to Sinai. We see similar language. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to have to move on. Um, you can kind of get a feel for what I'm doing. I've tried to highlight the text um, to give you a sense of how the narrative moves. Uh, I want to say one thing real quick here on page 11. Moses and God are going back and forth about the people. <clears throat> Moses is like, um, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor, favor in your sight, I and your people? It, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? They were to be a holy people, and they're going to live in the holy land. So I'm going to have to move a little faster to finish up. On page 14, I'm going to read this a little bit. The promised land is a sanctuary. It's a holy space. It's a temple. It's a place where God is going to live with his people. This is looking forward now. Remember, before when they start to come into the land under Joshua, Joshua's going to encounter a man with a drawn sword in his hand right on the eastern border of the promised land. He said, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. That sounds familiar. Moses had the same encounter, did he not? Because, Moses, because Joshua is in the vestibule, so to speak, of the land as a sanctuary. The land is a sanctuary. It's just a shadow of the heaven reality, the heavenly sanctuary. As they were going to enter into the promised land, a place where they were going to, where God was going to dwell with his people, it's going to be a holy sanctuary, right? So when Joshua is moving to the land to assess the military at Jericho, he's moving from the east to the west. The entrance to the land that they're going through is on the east side. That's not a coincidence. It's teaching us theologically that like the Garden of Eden, the land was a sanctuary. And take a wild guess in what direction God insisted the tabernacle faced. The tent of meeting that Moses constructed. East. Not only that, he had to put it outside the camp because he would only speak with Moses and, they, and, it, and, the, and the tabernacle was to face east, but it was also be placed outside the camp because he was not going to dwell with them, only through Moses at that point. And he says, when the temple was built, <clears throat> um, God said he wanted the temple to face east. God had a specific design for the tabernacle and the temple. Here, Joshua is walking from the east to the west. He comes to the door because the entrance is on the east. You remember earlier on, uh, when they're in the wilderness, they're trying to go into the land. you got the, the, the debacle with the 12 spies. Ten of them said, hey, this is good, a good land, but there's giants. Two of them said, hey, it's good land, we can do it if God's with us. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. Then, uh, well, wait a minute, that's not a good idea, maybe we should go. We're just going to go our way. And they got defeated. But they went where? From the south. And God wasn't with them, and Moses warned them. So now they're going to come back, and they're going to try to enter it this time through the east. So we see there's this man, the man drawn with a sword in his hand. The phrase, the man with the, the, that phrase, the man with a drawn sword in his hand, only occur, occurs two other times in the Old Testament. Both reinforce the same picture. The land was a sanctuary. So Israel is going to enter the land as a new son of God. Adam was the son of God. Israel is the son of God. Eventually, we're going to see the true son of God. Right? What's he going to do? He's going to kick them out. Why? He kicked, he's going to kick the Israelites out of the Holy Land eventually, just like he kicked Adam and Eve out of the sanctuary, because they were unholy. 
They did not keep his rules, his statutes, his commandments. He wouldn't even let them into the wouldn't even let them into the promised land until they uh, circumcised their kids because that was a sign of the covenant, and they had not circumcised the children while they were in the wilderness wanderings. The first generation did. The second generation, the men of fighting. The, the men of fighting age were not, and he would not let them enter until they did. It was that important. The covenant was tied to this concept of holiness, God's holiness. He wants to be present with his people, just like it was in Eden, just like he, when he when he, when he meet with Moses on the mountain, when he, when he meet with Moses in the tent of meeting, whether it was in the tabernacle, whether it was in the temple, um, all of these things. <clears throat> And I'll just try to finish up real quick. If the Israelites were not circumcised and they went into land, they would be virtual Canaanites. And if they were going to Canaanite, if they were a Canaanite, they're going to get expelled. If they're virtually a Canaanite, they're going to expel from the land. Right? They wouldn't be any different than the Canaanites if they weren't. They were supposed to be distinct. Right? So have you ever wondered why God never told the Israelites to kill all the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians? Where didn't any of those people live? In the promised land. He is cleansing the promised land. It is a temple, a sanctuary. Eventually he will put, instead of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, you're going to have the temple itself within the promised land. What happens later on? What happens later on? All of this, he kicks the people out of the northern and southern kingdom after the monarchy. They split and they both fall away from God. And he kicks them all out. Brings them back. They constitute another temple. Not the same glory as the first. Right? And then it's destroyed in AD 70. And Christ is saying this all points forward to him. This is the Christocentric part. He is the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Right? These things were uh, a copy and a shadow. They pointed forward to Christ. He, Christ is the true temple. Right? He is the true high priest. He is the true sacrifice. All of this points toward him. Um, so when we read the uh, prologue and the preamble, um, the Lord our God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There is a whole lot going on, a whole lot going on. I'm sorry I went long. I wish I had more time to dwell on this. Please read over it. If you have any questions, we can talk about it again in more detail or anything else. There's a lot of material there I know. But I think it can be helpful the better you understand these concepts. I'm going to finish in prayer real quick, okay? Father, we thank you for this um, special opportunity we have to um, learn of you from your word. And uh, we just pray that you would minister to all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.